Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode on commonly missed uncommon orthopedic injuries, we have guest experts Dr. Ivy Cheng and Dr. Hussein Median. Dr. Cheng is an emergency and sports medicine specialist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and at Sports Medicine Specialists in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. She's a co-founder and editor of MRAD, the Online Emergency Medicine Radiology Database. Dr. Median is an orthopedic surgeon at North York General Hospital and faculty at the University of Toronto Department of Orthopedic Surgery. Most orthopedic surgeons think that a list frank injury needs an open reduction. Make sure you get the proper views of the foot. In the past, orthopedic surgeons used to miss this quite often too. Perilunate dislocation, acute carpal, carpal tunnel, tunnel syndrome. syndrome. Just a quick announcement before we jump into ortho misses. The University Health Network EM Conference is coming up in just a couple of weeks in Toronto. It's a fantastic conference that's been around for a few years now. And this year, there's a great lineup of speakers that have been EM Case's guest experts at one time or another. We've got David Carr, Anil Chopra, Eric Litovsky, Jason Fisher, Amal Matu, Joel Yaffe, and Don Mulady, just to name a few. If you do a web search for University Health Network Emergency Medicine Conference 2014, you'll hit the page that you need to register at. So do come on down and introduce yourself as I'll be speaking there as well. And here we go. Now, I rarely talk about medical legal issues in emergency medicine cases because I think it misguides us a bit from what's really important, which is good patient-centered care. Nonetheless, missed orthopedic injuries are the most common reason for an eMERGE doc to be sued in Canada. Now, this is partly because missed orthopedic injuries are far more common than, say, missed MIs, but it's also because it's easy to miss certain orthopedic injuries, especially the ones that aren't super common. And ortho is difficult to learn and remember for the EM practitioner because there's so many injuries to remember. And so you guessed it. On this episode, we're going to run through a pile of not-so-common, easy-to-miss orthopedic injuries, some of which I personally had to learn about the hard way, if you know what I mean. After listening to this episode, try some cognitive forcing strategies. For example, for every patient with a foosh that you see, look for and document a drudge injury. Wait, hold on. I don't want to give it all away at the top of the podcast. Let's hear what EM doc and sports medicine guru Ivy Chang has to say, and the orthopedic surgeon who everyone at North York General turns to when they need help for a difficult ortho case, Dr. Hussein Median. Let's hear what they have to say about commonly missed uncommon orthopedic injuries. Welcome, Dr. Cheng. Hi, Anton. Great to meet you and see you today. It's great to meet you. Thank you. And Dr. Median. Well, as an orthopedic surgeon, we do quite a bit of calls at North Air General. So we do have a quite a bit of interaction between our, ourselves and the emergency physicians. And as you mentioned, missed orthopedic injuries are not uncommon, unfortunately. But I see that uh, throughout the years, they've become less and less common. I think emergency physicians are improving and they are learning and they are not missing as they used to miss. So that's a very good achievement that I've seen over the years, actually. Well, that's great to hear. All right. So let's jump into our first case. The first case is a 43-year-old man who was out jogging in a ravine an hour before presentation to your ED when his right foot slipped into a hole in the ground that he didn't see that was covered by leaves. He comes in barely able to wait bear, complaining of midfoot pain. On exam, he's impressively swollen and tender over the dorsal midfoot. So what's the most important diagnosis you don't want to miss in this patient and why? Midfoot injuries compromises a quite significant amounts of injury that can happen in the midfoot. From list frank, it can happen. It can be navicular fractures. It can be fractures in the cuneiform. It can be metatarsal base fractures. But the major thing is list frank injuries have a bad prognosis if they're not 
caught on time and treated correctly. The reason why you don't want to miss it is it can, if missed, lead to complications such as arthritis and instability in the foot in the future. So that's the injury that you don't want to miss. The Lisfranc injury. Great. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about Lisfranc injuries. Dr. Cheng, I've learned that up to 20% of Lisfranc injuries are misdiagnosed or missed in the ED. What exactly is a Lisfranc injury and why is it so easy to miss? So the Liz Frank injury is actually an injury at the tarsometatarsal joint. Essentially, it's actually at the Liz Frank ligament, which is between the medial cuneiform and the second metatarsal base. Why it's so easy to miss is that it's not common. It just doesn't present all the time. You know, it might actually present perhaps maybe three times in, in 10 years in your practice. And as well, the mechanism of the injury can actually be very low velocity, low trauma type of injury. Uh, we're always taught in medical school that the classic was people who fall out of a horse with the stirrup stuck with the foot. But what you just need to know, it's a midfoot injury. This is an injury that just doesn't happen too often. Okay, so that's what a Lisfranc injury is. Dr. Median, what's the usual mechanism for a Lisfranc? Dr. Cheng had mentioned getting the foot caught in the stirrup of a horse. But what are the most common ones that you see? Well, I mean, uh, the most common ones that we see are sports injuries. There are two types of injuries in Lisfranc. It's the high velocity where they, where they usually go to the trauma center, they've got multiple fractures, and at the same time, they've injured their foot. That is pretty easy to pick up if you take x-rays from the foot because you can see significant dislocation. I think anyone who looks at those x-rays, even a medical student, can pick that up. The ones that get missed are the subtle injuries, the ones that are low-velocity trauma. They Exactly like the case you mentioned, you know, the guy tripped into a hole, or especially in football, you know, when the football player is lying right prone on the ground and someone comes and puts their feet right on the back of their heel, that can cause a significant list fracture dislocation or even a more subtle injury. Those are the ones that you don't want to miss, per se, because the fracture dislocation where their bones are completely separated is pretty easy to pick up. I'm more or less concerned about the low-velocity injuries and the subtle injuries that are missed, per se. It's an ankle that's in plantar flexion with external rotation exactly. that causes it, and it's the low-energy mechanisms that are the ones that are missed that we really need to look out for. I've also heard about the list, Frank, in pediatrics called the bunk bed fracture, where mm. children leap from Jump the top the of the bed. bug bed, and when they land kind of on their toes, then they get that classic mechanism of the plantar flexion and external rotation. In addition to stepping off a curb wrong, it could be as simple as that. Huh. So it's not all just uh, ankle sprains, eh? That's right. Okay. <laughs> So that's the mechanism of injury. That's what Lisfranc is all about. Let's talk about uh, physical exam findings. What's the spectrum of physical exam findings for a Lisfranc injury? So as you mentioned on your presentation, the patient comes with pain. They're usually unable to weight bear. That's important because usually, as you mentioned, ankle sprains, patients usually have the ankle sprain. They can weight bear. So Lisfranc injuries, usually patient can't weight bear. On physical examination, there's one characteristic finding. If you find hematoma on this plantar aspect of the foot, it's probably a Lisfranc injury. So hematoma right on the sole of the foot, on the medial aspect, that's a characteristic finding for a Lisfranc injury. That's a great pearl. Okay, so we're looking for swelling in the dorsal midfoot, for sure. a little medially, and ecchymosis on e the bottom of exactly. the foot. Exactly. Okay. Ecchymosis, right, bruising right on the medial aspect of the plantar aspect of the foot is characteristic for a Lisfranc injury. Okay, and do all, I mean, I've always thought that Lisfrancs, they present with a huge amount of swelling and tenderness in the midfoot there. Is that correct? I mean, or do you, do you sometimes well, say Lisfranc? Well, the that subtle don't, ones are not that huge. I mean, they do present with some swelling, but not necessarily significant. I mean, in the high-velocity injuries, you should definitely rule out compartment syndrome because that can be associated with high-energy trauma and associated Lisfranc fracture dislocation. So as a part of the examination of the patient, you should always be aware of the presence of compartment syndrome in the foot. And as you know, compartment syndrome in the, in the foot is very hard to diagnose sometimes because it does not present like compartment syndrome in the shin or in the tibia. 
So one of the characteristics is to definitely in the foot, if you see significant swelling, you see significant pain, significant edema, definitely ask for neurologic signs or symptoms. If the patient has evidence of paresthesia, hyposthesia in the first dorsal web space, then that might be a sign of impending compartment syndrome. Another compartment syndrome to think about. Compartment syndromes aren't always in the, the lower leg sure. or the arm. So let's talk a little bit about the x-ray findings, because this is where it's often missed, is you might have a lowish energy mechanism, and the patient might not have that characteristic of the exam findings. Then you do the x-ray, and they're often subtle findings. Dr. Chang, can you review for us the x-ray findings of a Lisfranc that we'll have beautiful images for on the written summary and blog post. And what we really want to emphasize is please pay attention to what Dr. Median has to say. In terms of the clinical findings, you need to have a high level of suspicion. So remember, you're not treating the image, you're treating the patient. So if you see that bruise, if you see the midfoot swelling and it's pain out of keeping and you have a normal x-ray, oftentimes the most common x-ray finding for a Lisfranc injury is a normal x-ray. But if you actually can find some injuries, what we like to do is make sure you get the proper views actually of the foot. So you want to actually get the 30 degree, the 45 degree and the lateral as well. So normally, if you order three views of the foot, if you're suspecting the list frank, you want to actually add a 30 degree oblique. Is that the sort yes. of special one that you want to order? Because you want to actually ensure that you can take your metatarsals and line them up with the cuneiforms as well as the, the small little tarsal bones actually in that midfoot. And that actually shows you about the alignment list, Frank. So the first is that you want to make sure that the medial edge of the base of the first and the second metatarsal lines up with the medial edge of the cuneiform. And as well, if you see more than two millimeters of displacement between the first and second metatarsal, which can be extremely subtle, and maybe with some midfoot swelling, consistent with the clinical exam, you should be suspicious. And the final one is a flex sign. So the flex sign actually is a fleck off the medial part of the second metatarsal at the base. So really magnify your image and take a good look, especially if you're really now suspicious based on your clinical exam. So the flex sign is a tiny little avulsion fracture. That's right at the base yes, of the second metatarsal yes, there. Yes, because there's a whole series of complex ligaments that connect all the tarsal bones to the base of the metatarsals and you have an avulsion off of it. So the flex sign is pathognomonic for a Lisfranc fracture. So even if you see that tiny little avulsion, uh, you got to take that seriously. Exactly. Okay. So if you suspect a Lisfranc injury clinically, let's say the patient comes in with a story with a good mechanism of injury, has lots of dorsal midfoot edema, has a bruise at the bottom of his foot, and he can't weight bear, but you can't find much on the x-ray. Let's say you've added the 30-degree oblique view and you still can't really see much. Is there a role for a CT scan or any other tests that we should be doing if we really highly suspect this injury? Just to elaborate on Lisfranc injury, let's just make it a bit more clear. Sometimes you've got Lisfranc sprains. Now, what we're talking about right now is literally dislocation or subluxations of the joint. That's the one that is problematic because you can sometimes sprain your Lisfranc ligament, have no subluxation of your tarsal metatarsal joints, but be in significant pain. That can be treated easily non-surgically with a cast, usually non-weight bearing, and the Lisfranc sprain usually takes a while, six weeks to resolve. But what we're talking about and we're putting emphasis on is the subluxation or slash dislocation that you, you don't want to miss, specifically the two millimeters that Dr. Chang was pointing out to that you see subluxation or displacement between the medial aspect of the middle cuneiform and the second metatarsal. Sometimes it's very hard to pick up because that is the point where you can differentiate whether a patient needs surgical intervention or it doesn't need surgical intervention. So in terms of if you do have suspicious, a test that you can sometimes do is obtain standing views. So obtaining AP standing views, you can see whether when the patient stands on a cassette and you get an AP view, whether you see that subluxation between the tarsal metatarsal joints. There is one problem with that. The problem is that patients are usually too painful to be able to stand on their feet. So whether they are really standing on their feet and doing stress views or not, that's a question mark. So one of the ways to deal with that is sometimes to give an ankle block. And then we send the patient, the patient has no pain, and the patient can wait bear. And then you can get an x-ray, and if you see evidence of 
subluxation of the tarsometatarsal joint, then that patient probably will benefit from surgical intervention. As opposed to you get an x-ray, the patient does have less frank, uh, you know, injury to the tarsometatarsal, but there's no evidence of subluxation. So this can be treated non-surgically. I think that's the differentiation that we should be able to make as an orthopedic surgeon per se, but for sure an emergent physician can also benefit from it. Once we diagnose or suspect the diagnosis of a Lisfranc, how do you suggest we manage them in the ED, and how soon do you want to see these patients? I think, again, we're talking in the context of subluxation, not dislocation, because if you have a high-energy trauma, dislocation, that's, that's easy. You call the orthopedic on call, and the patient has to go to the OR. So we're talking about low-energy Lisfranc injuries. In this context, I think it's reasonable to put a well-padded splint or a back slap for the patient, give the patient a pair of crutches, and then give the patient some anti-inflammatory medication with elevation instructions. And the patient should probably follow up in the fracture clinic uh, to be seen by an orthopedic surgeon within a week. Okay, so those are the, for the ones that aren't displaced at all. What if you have two millimeters of displacement? I think that makes sense that that patient does need surgical intervention, but there's no urgency to perform surgical intervention on that patient. You can perform it within the first 10 days. The major thing is to be sure that there is, there is no significant edema before you can take the patient to the OR, because if you have significant swelling, you should defer the surgery until the swelling decreases to a, an amount that the surgeon can place an incision on the dorsum of the foot. Great. So if you've got a huge dislocation, that's obviously something that you, you, want, yes. you want to hear about right away in the emergency department. For sure. But for small subluxations and bad strains, back slab, crutches, follow up in a week. Even with the presence of a flex sign, I can see it within a week. I don't have to see it the next day. It's good to know. I always thought, you know, as soon as I heard Liz Frank, it's like, okay, get ortho on the phone right away. Okay, <laughs> yes. that's good to know. But I would emphasize just the non-weight bearing. The, the complications of arthritis and instability are for individuals who were just sent home and not even diagnosed, and they were walking and weight bearing on it, and they get diagnosed like half a year or a year later. I think those are the ones that give us some worry. So let's do a review here of Lisfranc injuries. Lisfranc injuries are at the tarsal metatarsal joint, and it's the high mechanism injuries that are obvious and easy fracture dislocations to pick up. What's the problem that we miss easily is the low energy mechanism, the bunk bed jump, the foot planted in a hole, seemingly minor sports injuries, or simply stepping off a curb can do it. And the mechanism of injury is usually plantar flexion of the ankle with external rotation of the ankle. On exam, these patients usually can't weight bear, and they have dorsal midfoot swelling and tenderness, although the swelling is sometimes absent. A bruise on the medial aspect of the sole of the foot is a key physical exam parole for Lisfranc injury. If you suspect a Lisfranc injury, but it's not really showing up on your usual x-rays, add a 30-degree oblique view and consider an ankle nerve block with standing views. Look for a flex sign, which is pathic mnemonic for a Lisfranc, that tiny little avulsion off the base of the second metatarsal. And remember that any misalignment of the medial aspect of the second metatarsal and cuneiform is a Lisfranc injury until proven otherwise. And lastly, surgery is indicated if there's more than two millimeters of subluxation at the tarsometatarsal joint. So that's all we're going to talk about the Lisfranc Frank injury. Let's go on to another case. Here it is. A 19-year-old woman has been partying in the park with her friends and climbed up a tree, showing off to her friends how she could hang upside down like a bat. She fell out of the tree and landed on both hands and then rolled onto her back. She complains of pain in her left wrist, but on exam, she's not really that tender at the distal radius or the snuff box, but more in the middle of the dorsal wrist. There's little, if any, swelling. A head-to-toe exam is otherwise normal. You take a quick look at the x-ray of the wrist, and it looks normal to you. 
Dr. Chang, what's your differential diagnosis in this patient? What significant diagnoses would you be worried about missing? So there actually are these occult scaphoid fractures, which the literature shows is about 15% of the cases. And to find them, you need to palpate the scaphoid at the volar aspect of it and have the wrist radially deviated. Or sometimes you can actually load the thumb. The other injury is actually the dredge injury, but we're going to talk about that a little bit later. The other injuries you really don't want to miss are the perilunar and the lunate dislocations. I always think of fuchsias as starting distally, checking the scaphoid, then the distal radius. In adults, the radial head, in kids, supracondylar, and even proximal humerus, and even clavicle. That's what I usually teach the, the medical students is for a fuchsia. I mean, usually the, the patient will point to where it is. But the next diagnosis that we're going to talk about isn't any of those common ones. So as you mentioned, if you think about the scaphoid, about the distal radius, you're probably right 99% of the time. The 1% of the time that you're not going to think about it, that's going to be probably a carpal injury, whether it's a perilunate injury. You always have to think about carpal metacarpal injuries. So those are also another entity. So therefore, it's not only confined to the distal radius and the scaphoid as we think it is, but uh, unfortunately sometimes you have to go outside the box and think about other things, which one of them is the perilunate injuries. Okay, so for a patient like this where <laughs> it's not the usual causes, you got to start thinking harder and looking in other places. So let's continue with the case. Sure. You go back to re-examine the patient after looking at this x-ray that looks pretty normal to you, you confirm that there's no snuff box tenderness, no axial thumb load tenderness that you would usually elicit in a scaphoid fracture, and no distal radius tenderness. You're worried enough about this patient because she's having severe pain, so you put her in a Velcro wrist splint and have her follow up in your fracture clinic a week later. You're thinking it's probably just a bad sprain. When you read the consult note two weeks later, you find out that the diagnosis was a perilunate dislocation and the patient went on to require surgery. So let's talk a little bit about perilunate dislocations. Dr. Median, why are perilunate dislocations often missed? It's probably the x-ray findings on the AP view specifically is a bit distorted, but not to a degree where it arouses suspicion by the emergency physician or even the orthopedic surgeons. In the past, orthopedic surgeons used to miss this quite often too, but nowadays we have become, it's probably very uncommon to miss it because we have learned how to pick up the pattern of the injury on the imaging. Now, the story of perilunate injuries, we have to be a bit more specific about them because this is a spectrum of injury, as we know. So the most simple one is a scaphoid dissociation, where there is a ligamentous injury between the scaphoid and the lunate, and the scaphoid and the lunate basically distract, are distracted and are separate on the x-rays. There's an injury between the scapholunate ligament, and therefore the scaphoid and the lunate separate from each other. And that's the one where we see the Terry Thomas sign or the exactly. David Letterman sign, okay, which we'll talk about a For bit sure. later. Yeah? Now, if this spectrum advances and the amount of injury is more, then in the next step, what happens is that the capitate comes out of the lunate fossa. So this is called a perilunate dislocation because the lunate is still sitting in the radial fossa while the capitate has dislocated dorsally out of the lunate fossa. This is called a perilunate dislocation. And if it advances more and the amount of injury is more, then what happens in the next stage, the lunate dislocates volarly and comes out of the lunate fossa from the distal radius. And that's the spilled teacup. Exactly. Okay. Got it. So that okay. is the spectrum of the injury. So the spectrum of injury is from the scapholunate dissociation to the perilunate dislocation to the full lunate dislocation. So the scapholunate dissociation, which is the Terry Thomas sign or David Letterman sign, the gap between the scaphoid and the lunate that we see on the x-ray, that happens with the least severe mechanism. Next in severity of injury is the perilunate dislocation, where the capitate dislocates out of the lunate fossa. 
And then finally, the most severe is the lunate dislocation. This is the spilled teacup where the lunate comes out of the lunate fossa. Next, we're going to talk more specifically about the x-ray findings, which I encourage you to look at on the blog post. All right, so that brings us to the sometimes subtle or we just don't look for it, x-ray findings. For the AP, on a very general level, you can think of it as flagstones. And when you see the flagstones, you should always have a very nice piece of cement in between, and it should just look like that. So it shouldn't look jumbled. Um, the other way to think of it is if you could drive your car around all the little little carpal bones, that's probably going to be okay. And then as Dr. Madian said, you can have an abnormality is when you actually see something called the Terry Thomas sign, which is now changed to the David Letterman sign, which is a gap. So when that gap between the flagstones, between the scaphoid and the lunate, is much wider than everything else. So you should pay attention to this. So On, they call it that because David Letterman has a too big... Yeah, that's right. He better. has a gap. Or you can call it the Madonna yeah. sign because Madonna has the gap between her two front teeth oh, as does well, she? right? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, yes. And so in, in a formal way, there was actually a radiologist called Galula who was just basically talking about the Galula lines. And these essentially is also talking about just the alignment of those two rows of carpal bones. So the abnormality of the galula lines is if you lose those galula lines, you'll actually see that the two carpal row bones have actually overlapped and you'll lose these lines. And then this was where you suspect that there's actually a, a perilunate dislocation. In addition, on the AP x-ray of the wrist, if the lunate is dislocated, it might actually look like a triangle. So keep that in mind. So just to clarify the AP x-ray of the wrist, you can think of the normal carpal bones on the AP x-ray of the wrist as flagstones that have equal distances of about one to two millimeters between them. Or if you had a tiny car that you were driving in between the carpal bones, you'd have a smooth, consistent one to two millimeter roadway without any narrowing or widening of the road. If you see overlap of the carpal bones or a widening of the space between carpal bones, you need to think about a serious ligamentous injury like a scaphalunate dissociation or a perilunate dislocation. In addition, there's normally three smooth curved galula lines that run in between the carpal bones that we'll have on the blog post. And if there's any step or disruption in any of the galula lines, then you need to suspect a bad ligamentous injury. Finally, the last thing to remember on the AP of the wrist is if the lunate looks triangular, then you may be looking at a lunate dislocation. If your AP appears normal, consider sending the patient for a clenched fist view, which might show the widening. And then the lateral is actually quite important, and you just have to be systematic about it. You should ensure that you have a stacking of cups, we call it, where your radius is a cup, and your capitate is a cup, and the base of your metacarpal is your cup, and it should stack up in a line that just goes up vertically. So therefore, a line between the radius should split the capitate. So you want to see a nice vertical line between the radius, the lunate, the capitate, and the third metacarpal. And if it looks like there's a spilled teacup, or if they don't line up nicely, then you need to suspect either a perilunate dislocation or a lunate dislocation. So Dr. Median, what's the big deal if we miss a perilunate dislocation? In other words, what's the long-term outcome if these aren't picked up early? There are many consequences to missing a perilunate fracture dislocation. The first problem is that the articulation has been disturbed. So in the long term, the patient will have pain. Number two is, imagine if the capitate comes out of the lunate fossa. What happens? The length of the wrist, the fulcrum of the wrist is shortened. So therefore, they'll have weakness in using their grip. They can't use their hand and their fingers appropriately either. So they have pain. They can't use their hand, and it becomes disabling for the patient. So this is quite significant uh, disability for the patient, which needs to be picked up because it's got an easy solution to it. So let's say we do pick up a perilunate dislocation in the eMERGE. Is the closed reduction a really difficult technique? Is it something we have to call the orthopedic surgeon for, or is this something that we can do in the eMERGE? I believe that it can be easily done by the eMERGE physician. I think the major point of doing a closed reduction in this is relaxation of the patient. And who can better give relaxation than the emergency physician by giving your propofol? So they can easily put the patient to, to sleep. And uh, the only basically way to reduce it is putting some traction 
and counter-opposing the deforming force. So when the capitate has come out of the lunate fossa, it comes from the back. You have to put traction and flex the wrist, and usually the capitate falls back into the lunate fossa. So it's pretty easy. Specifically in capitate dislocations, if the, if the lunate is fully dislocated, it becomes a bit more difficult. But again, it is something that can be attempted with traction and flexion of the wrist under good sedation. We'll have a picture on the blog post of how to do this, and I understand that it is pretty easy. And how urgent is it to reduce these? I mean, can these wait till the next day or a couple of days later? I think the principles are like any other dislocations. Dislocations can't wait for many reasons. Number one is pain. If you don't reduce these, the patient is in severe pain. Number two, if you leave a joint dislocated, it swells, edema, swelling, and it's like a very vicious cycle. So as soon as you reduce a joint, you maintain the anatomy, even if it's not perfect, you help the patient with reduced swelling, decreased pain. If you leave it for the next day or the day after, it becomes far more difficult to reduce it because now you've got a significant amount of spasm and contracture of the muscles. It becomes even more difficult. So the sooner you reduce it, the easier it is and the less swelling you have and better pain control you have. And that's what patients expect from us. So I think it's a must to reduce it as soon as possible, like any other dislocation in the emergency department. Okay, one thing we didn't talk about with these perilunate dislocations is the possibility of, of nerve damage. I understand with these perilunate dislocations, it's not uncommon to get nerve damage. We all know to test for neurovascular status on every orthopedic patient, but in the perilunate dislocation, what should we specifically be looking for? So we should really look for a median nerve injury. So if there's actually numbness in the median nerve distribution, be very careful. And as Dr. Median has explained, expeditious uh, reduction is necessary in this case. So in other words, it's like a, an acute carpal tunnel syndrome. Yes, exactly. Okay, that's an easy way to remember it. Yes. Perilunate dislocation, acute carpal, carpal tunnel, tunnel syndrome. syndrome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you have a perilunate dislocation and you achieve anatomical reduction in the emergency department, don't think that it's done. That patient needs surgery anyways. So send the patient to the fracture clinic. Don't send the patient home and tell them to come to the fracture clinic six weeks later Mm -hmm. because you had an anatomical reduction. No, because the ligaments are torn. And if you don't repair the ligaments, what is going to happen, things are going to drift over time. So therefore, send the patient as soon as possible to the fracture clinic, hopefully within the next day or two, because that patient will need surgical intervention. And is there any particular splinting that's needed? You apply a volar slab for these patients after reduction, and you put them in neutral position. You do not need to put them in flexion or extension because they can increase pressure over the median nerve and they can be detrimental to the function of the nerve. So neutral position is sufficient. Okay, you want to avoid that acute carpal tunnel syndrome at all costs. Got it. And all the things you thought would stay, you watch time take away. So now that we've scared the bejeebers out of our listeners about perilunate dislocations, let's go on to our third case. Case number three is a 52-year-old man who's running for the bus. He trips, and he has a foosh. He comes in complaining of right wrist pain, and on exam, he's tender and swollen on both the distal radius as well as the ulnar styloid. His x-ray shows an undisplaced distal radius fracture. Very rare injury. Just kidding. (laughs) He's placed in a volar wrist splint and given follow-up in your fracture clinic in two weeks. Dr. Cheng... One of the more common ways in which we miss orthopedic injuries is that once we find one injury, we stop and don't look for a second one. What injuries should this man be assessed for besides the very common distal radius fracture? 
And that is very true, Anton. So we always should go back to basic principles, which is that you should always look above and below the joint for the injury. So the one injury that you really want to take a look at, given this scenario, especially with this ulnar styloid fracture, is a dredge injury. And dredge stands for DRUJ, which is a distal radial ulnar joint injury. This patient's uh, distal radius fracture is going to heal and the patient is going to complain of pain on the ulnar aspect of the wrist for probably many months, even if the drudge has not been injured significantly. So distal ulnar joint injuries are pain in the neck. They continue to disturb the patient for many, many months, even after a distal fracture. It's funny that you mentioned this case. Whenever I see these patients in my fracture clinic, I tell them, listen, the radius fracture is the more apparent fracture. That's going to heal. But you're going to come back from now until six months complaining of pain on the honor side of your wrist. That will take for a while before it goes away. Even if it's subtle, it is the most annoying part of the spectrum of the injury. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about drudge injuries, which sound like is the bane of every orthopedic surgeon's existence. (laughs) Okay, let's continue with the case here. This patient was placed in a below elbow plaster wrist splint and followed up in two weeks in the fracture clinic. When the splint was removed in two weeks, the patient had significant pain and tenderness, not only on the distal radius, but all across the entire wrist to the ulnar side, just like you were describing, Dr. Median. The original x-rays were reviewed, and on the lateral, you could see that the ulna was slightly displaced dorsally compared to the radius, and a drudge injury was diagnosed. So Dr. Median, how is the management different from a simple distal radius fracture without a drudge injury? So we have a patient who comes in with a foosh, they have a distal radius fracture. Let's say we're keen, and we've listened to this podcast, and we diagnose a drudge injury How would the management be different? The major thing here, what we don't want to miss, is a dislocation of the distal radial ulnar joint. A difficult diagnosis to pick on x-rays. Because if you obtain x-rays in different angles, you can sometimes assume, oh my God, the ulna is dislocated. But then you obtain an x-ray in another oblique angle or, you know, in a true lateral angle, you can see, oh, the ulna is in place. Or you sometimes obtain an x-ray from the contralateral wrist and you see, wow, it's got the same appearance. It seems that the ulna is dislocated bilaterally, but there's no problem on the other wrist. So it's a difficult diagnosis. You can't just look at it and say, oh, the patient has a ulnar joint dislocation. Here, physical examination comes in place. Very important Whenever I've got an undisplaced distal radius fracture, like the case you said, sometimes even mildly displaced, and the patient's complaining of significant pain over the honor side, I'm not 100% sure whether it's dislocated, it's subluxed, what is happening over there around the distal radial honor joint. I ask the patient, can you fully pronate or supinate your wrist? The first physical finding of distal radial ulnar joint subluxation or dislocation is a block in pronosupination. It's simple. If the patient can fully pronate and supinate the wrist, you are probably, like anything else, not 100%, but you're probably not missing a distal radial ulnar joint subluxation or dislocation. I'm not talking about ligamentous tears or anything, because ligamentous tears can be stable. So let's classify this radial ulnar joint injuries. We either say this radial ulnar joint injuries are stable or unstable. We're talking about the unstable ones because the stable ones, they are tears. Surgically, you don't need to operate on them right away. They usually do well with it over the long term. The, the unstable ones, which are the subluxations or the dislocations, those are the ones that are of importance to us, and we don't want to miss them. And in those cases where you've got a subluxation or a dislocation of a distal radial ulnar joint, you probably have a block in pronosupination. Okay, so one of the key pearls then in physical exam is pronation, supination. They just can't do one of those. Exactly. Okay. When you see that, then you're suspicious there's something wrong with the distal radial ulnar joint. Okay. And what are some of the other physical exam 
maneuvers that we look for when we're suspicious of a drudge or for that matter whenever anyone comes in with a distal radius fracture we should be looking for a drudge injury as well what, what do you what do you do on physical exam dr cheng so what you can do actually is first just inspect the wrist and if you see that that ulnar styloid compared to one side to the other looks just that much more prominent or even looks a bit more dorsally displaced be a bit suspicious the second thing you can do is something called the piano key sign. So if you can take and press on that ulna and you can blot it and it can go up and down, then it feels unstable. And of course, compare the other side and that can be actually a sign. The other sign or a third sign is the fovea sign. And what you would do is you find that junction between the carpal bones and the ulnar styloid and you palpate in that area. Uh, you can deviate the wrist a little bit and if there's actually some pain, uh, get a bit suspicious again. And finally, as Dr. Madian was talking about the pronation and supination, get the person to pronate and supinate. And if there's some crepitus actually in that area, again, you would be suspicious. Okay. So we'll have some pictures of the ulna fovea sign on the blog post. So just to review there, you might actually see an obvious deformity of the ulna styloid. It might look a little bit lower or a little bit higher compared to the other side. So comparing to the other side can help. If you try and pronate or supinate the patient and it blocks or you feel crepitus, then that's one of the other signs. The fovea sign, which we'll have a picture on the blog post to look at if it's tender there, then that's another sign. And finally, the piano key sign, which is being able to blot essentially that ulna styloid up and down like a piano key would be able to go up and down. That's correct. So Dr. Median. We've been talking about a patient with a FUSH who has a distal radius fracture, who also has a drudge injury. In what other settings do drudge injuries happen? Can they happen on their own without any fracture? Do they tend to happen with all sorts of other fractures? Can you just give us an idea of the spectrum of the drudge injuries? Drudge injuries can be isolated. You can have isolated the distal radial ulnar joint dislocations. So it doesn't necessarily need to be accompanied with distal radius fractures. It is mostly accompanied with distal radius fracture, but not necessarily it can also be associated with other carpal injuries. So again, you can have in the context of other carpal injuries, this is the distal radial ulnar joint you have to pay attention to. I ask whether it's radial-sided or ulnar-sided. As soon as I have ulnar-sided pain around the wrist, drudge comes as one of the differential diagnoses. So I think it's something to think about in ulnar-sided wrist pain. If you've got radial-sided wrist pain, sometimes I get calls and the emergency physicians say, oh, the distal radial ulnar joint looks funny. I say, okay, yeah, it does look funny on the x-ray. When I see the patient, I say, where's your pain? The patient points out, oh, it's on the radial side. I don't have to worry about that because that's probably a normal radiographic finding. So as I mentioned, x-rays on drudge are sometimes, for me specifically, I find it sometimes difficult to in interpret. So I'm a bit more liberal in asking for imaging, extra imaging, uh, when I am suspicious if there is a drudge subluxation in this location. And the best thing to do in this case is to do a CT. And whenever you do a CT, you usually do the CT of both wrists because you want to compare both wrists at the same time together. And it's easy. They can do it at the same time. You can compare both and see whether you're ulna is subluxed or dislocated compared to the normal contralateral site. I'm talking about the ones you think that your distal radial ulnar joint is disrupted in a sense that the ulna does not sit in its fossa on the distal radius anymore. So in those cases, they need to be reduced. Again, we come to the principles of dislocation reduction. It's simple to reduce them. You most of them are dorsal, meaning that the ulna displaces dorsally out of the groove of the radius. And you can just supinate the forearm. And by supinating the forearm, the ulna usually goes back. And if you immobilize them in that position, then you have a reduced distal radial ulnar joint. Again, if they're dislocated, you need to figure it out and treat them. Otherwise, if you've got a distal radius fracture, many distal radius fractures, probably around 40, 30 to 40% of them have distal radial ulnar joint injuries, but they're not dislocations or subluxations. I see. Okay. So if we suspect a dislocation or a subluxation, then we need to reduce that in the emergency department. And that's simply done by supinating the patient's wrist. I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. So normally when we have an undisplaced distal radius fracture, we'll put the patient in a radial splint. 
But if they have a dislocated or subluxated drudge associated with it, then we have to mobilize them in above elbow splint in supination. So from the emergency perspective, the way we're going to be treating these patients is totally different. Exactly. And to be more comprehensive, if the ulna is dislocated dorsally, you supinate it. Very rarely the ulna comes volarly, but you will probably see it once in your lifetime. Those are the ones that you have to pronate it to reduce it. But most of the time, if you supinate it, it goes back into the joint. But you have to verify whether it's reduced on repeat imaging after having supinated the forearm. Got it. Mm-hmm. So I have heard the drudge injury has been called the low back pain of hand surgeons. So it's a little bit of a, a pain in the wrist, I guess, instead of a pain in the butt. But uh, <laughs> let's just review here a little bit about the drudge injury. So patient comes in with a foosh. They may or may not have a distal radius fracture, an ulna fracture. These are the kind of patients that you want to think about it in. If they complain of dominant ulnar pain of the wrist, then that's when you want to think of it. In terms of the physical exam, you want to pronate and supinate and see if it blocks or if there's crepitus. And then there's a few other physical exam maneuvers you can do, the fovea sign and the piano key sign. And when the drudge is dislocated or subluxated, that you can often see on the lateral x-ray, but sometimes you can't, these patients need to be reduced in the emergency department. And the reduction is quite simple with a supination because these are almost always dislocated dorsally. And don't forget to immobilize them in an above elbow splint in supination. I'm on a lookout. Okay, on to case number four. An 18-year-old kickboxer comes in after a fight. He attempted to kick his opponent in the head but missed and felt a sudden onset of pain in his right buttock and thigh. He says he thinks he pulled his hamstring. He refuses to sit down on the stretcher because he says it really hurts to sit down and he has an antalgic gait. So, Dr. Cheng, first of all, this patient's probably right in thinking that he's pulled his hamstring. Would you x-ray this patient? Why or why not? Actually, Anton, you should x-ray this patient. And uh, there is this entity called a apophysial avulsion fracture that can occur. And uh, guys up to 25 years old can have this. And the most common area actually is along the ischial tuberosity, where after there's an eccentric contraction of the hamstring, it pulls off that insertion, which is your apophysis, off the uh, pelvic body. So this is something that I wasn't really aware of until recently. So what is it about the anatomy that makes it easy for these things to come off? Yeah, so this, essentially, there's still actually a growth plate kind of going on. And so the muscle tendon junction that's attached to the bone is actually stronger than the growth plate. So with this sudden forceful contraction of the muscle, it actually pulls off the piece of bone. Okay, so ligaments are stronger than bone in kids, I guess, is right. a general principle. and still up to the age of 20. And these tend to happen in kids who are athletes? Yes, it's usually very athletic because they actually have to have a pretty forceful eccentric contraction. So as you have, you have your kickboxer who's giving, giving that big kick uh, to actually get that forceful eccentric contraction. And why do we need to know about these injuries? I mean, what's the difference if they sprained their hamstring or if they actually popped off the bone there? I think it's a matter of recovery. It takes far more longer in these than uh, normal sprains. So it can take up to weeks before the patient can get back to their regular activities. It can take months before they can get back to their sports activities. In my mind, whenever a patient with the description you gave comes to the fracture clinic emergency department, because of the proximity of the sciatic nerve, I always examine the sciatic nerve and I document the function of the sciatic nerve. You want to make sure there's no weakness in the sciatic nerve. You want to document that because it's right in the vicinity. So in hamstring uh, apophysial uh, avulsions, there's something to be aware of and document as an emergency physician. I think it's important. In terms of treatment, treatments uh, are quite variable between countries, I assume. 
as far as I know, my American colleagues try to treat the ones that are displaced more than two centimeters in terms of the hamstring avulsion fractures with open reduction and screw fixation. Apparently in Canada, as far as I know, most of us try to treat these non-surgically. So those are the ischial tuberosity avulsion fractures, which are the most common kind of apophyseal avulsion fractures. Can you just give us an idea of what other apophyseal injuries that we should look out for? Yeah, so there's actually other apophyses actually in the pelvis. And so there's ones located at the ASIS and the AISIS, which is where a lot of the large muscles of the anterior thigh are attached to. But the more common ones that we're more familiar with is Osgood Schlatter's actually, where your patellar tendon attaches to. There's uh, also Savers disease actually, which is what your Achilles is attached to with your calcaneus. So there's apophyseal injuries all over the lower extremities, Mm. but particularly with these pelvic ones, those are the ones we don't think about as much. That's right. And again, the the ischial tuberosity is the most common area for this to happen. In the pelvis. uh, In the pelvis with what looks like a hamstring sprain. You should get an x-ray because these patients might take months to get back to their sports as opposed to a week or two if they just pulled their hamstring. And I should also clarify, so apophyseal injuries is on a spectrum. The majority of what we see in the sports medicine clinic is apophysitis, which is just inflammation, actually, of the attachment. And that's Osgood Schlatter's and Seavers. And it's treated um, basically quite easily. We basically say, you know, activity is tolerated, and if it hurts, you just hold back. This is very different from an avulsion, which is what we were talking about, where the growth plate actually has been evulsed off, and the piece has been evulsed off, and this actually requires off activity for about three months to allow this to reseal back and heal back onto the pelvis. To help maximize your learning, I'd like to suggest that you visit the EM Cases website to review the images and go through the Q&A to help make this stuff stick better for you. Please email me at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com if you have any Lisfranc, perilunate, drudge, or pelvic apophyseal injury cases that you want to share. And again, I hope to see you at the UHN conference with Amal Matu and David Carr on November 4th. So this marks the end of part one. Please go on to part two, where we'll discuss the squeeze test for syndesmosis injuries, when biceps tendon ruptures do need surgery, how not to miss quadriceps tendon ruptures, and much, much more. So until next time, take it easy.